Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. And you never really, as a writer, I don't think, if you're any good, you never lose that that slight creeping sense of dread that you're really not that good. Hello, writers. Welcome back to Write Off, the podcast about writing rejection in all its forms, from self-doubt to books not selling. I'm your host, Francesca Steele, a journalist and writer based in London, And if you want to know more about my own experience with writing rejection, you can hear about that in the first season. My guest this week is so well known that his unfinished manuscripts and first drafts have been displayed at the National Library of Scotland. Sir Ian Rankin has published more than 35 books in his 36 years of writing. That includes 24 novels about the Edinburgh police detective John Rebus, which have now sold over 30 million copies around the world. His latest, A Heart Full of Headstones, came out this year. What is so interesting about Rankin's publishing history is that he really didn't make it straight out the gate. And in fact, it took him a while writing in quite difficult circumstances, including a time when he suffered panic attacks in London and a period living as an impoverished artist with his wife in France, where he was living in fear of not being published again before the Rebus series really took off. I love talking to him about the rejections for the first Rebus novel and how he still receives rejections today, can you imagine? About how he turned to thrillers thinking he'd write the next big airport book before finding his way back to Rebus and about how writers are the weird kids at school. This episode of Write Off is sponsored by The Novelry. The Novelry is one of the world's best-loved writing schools with more five-star reviews on Trustpilot than any other. With one-to-one coaching from best-selling authors, feedback from publishing editors, and step-by-step daily lessons to create, write, and complete your book. On the classic Storytelling Foundation course, you'll build your story idea, looking at the ingredients of the best-selling novels of all time to come up with a story that's uniquely yours. On the 90-day novel course, you'll get that first draft done fast with step-by-step daily guidance and one-to-one coaching from a published author. On the big edit, you'll work with a publishing editor to polish the second draft and beyond, taking the manuscript to publishing standard. 
The Novelry offers courses, coaching and community, a three-pronged approach to write and finish your novel. I'd just like to add that I myself have actually just started one of their courses and it's such a wonderful community, really fun, really engaged. I highly recommend it. Make this your year. Sign up at thenovelry.com today and discover the courses so many writers describe as life-changing. So let's listen to Ian. I'm, I came from a, a very working class background. My parents had left school at 14, 15 and got, got kind of, you know, fairly menial jobs. Um, never owned their own home, never owned a car. There wasn't much money around and they weren't great readers. Um, but I was obsessed with, with reading and indeed writing from a very early age. But because we had one successful uncle in the family who lived in Yorkshire and he was an accountant and he owned his own home and he owned a car, my parents thought that maybe I should be an accountant. They thought you went to university to get a trade, to get a profession. And I was the first member of my family to go to uni. So they thought, you know, do accountancy. So this was planned for me. Um, but I wasn't much good at economics uh, at school. And so I had an epiphany uh, when I was 17. I said, look, really, I don't want to study accountancy at university just to get a job. I want to study literature. And they sort of thought, well, what, what will you get? You know, what will you do when you leave university? And I said, I don't know, I'll come back to Fife and become a teacher, I guess. Um, all the teachers of my school, had, you know, were, were, had lived locally gone off to uni and teacher training college and then come back again and become teachers. I thought that would be my career path. Um, and neither of them sadly lived to see me be a successful writer. So uh, I wish they had, and I could have thumbed my nose at them slightly. <laughs> what do you think they'd say? Do you think they would read your books for a start? Well, my dad was around for my first two or three books and he read them. I think he was a slightly bemused by the fact that I'd written something that was publishable. But I think he was proud. He would sort of lend them to friends of his. Um, yeah, what would they think? I mean, I think they would be bowled over um, and, and sort of stupefied that someone can make a good living by telling lies. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I mean, that, that um, concept of not really knowing you can, you can make a living as a writer or even that being a writer is a sort of real job comes up a lot on this podcast, even from... Uh, people from with middle class backgrounds I think if you're not even if you come from houses with lots of books in them if you don't know writers and you mm. don't come from that sort of background I think people find it hard to get their heads around the idea that it might be something you can really live off yeah although you know at university I met a lot of people who had been privately educated and they were much more self-confident than mm. than the working class kids who would sit quietly in a tutorial just writing everything down or the people that had been to private school, fee-paying school, would be would be pontificating on every subject under the sun, whether they understood it or not. But they would talk with great confidence, <laughs> as though they did. Um, and it was it dawned on me, you know, maybe after a couple of years of uni, that in fact these people didn't know any more than I did. They were just much better at hiding the fact. Um, uh, but you know, that was it, it was through university that I really got started because I was I met a lot of people. A lot of students who also want to be writers or um, actors or musicians or filmmakers, start a magazine, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, put on a play, and nothing was going to hold us back. If we wanted to try and do something, we would try and do it. This was the period of punk. This was '78. I arrived at university, and punk told you, "Look, just go on and give it a go." 
doesn't matter what your background is or whether you can afford lots of instruments or you know the right people. If it's something you want to do creatively, just get on and do it. And I was lucky in a way that I'd started young. I mean, at school, I was writing song lyrics, which eventually became poems because a poetry competition was announced and I went in for it with a poem called, I think it was called Euthanasia. Um, and it won second prize. So by the time I arrived at Edinburgh University, I was already a published poet. I'd had one poem published. And then I decided I was never going to make it as a poet and moved to the short story. And again, I was going in for competitions. And the first short story I remember writing, I put in for a competition run by the Scotsman newspaper. And it won second prize. I didn't get any money, I don't think, but I did get a Sinclair Spectrum computer. And the next year I went in for another competition, which was run by the local radio station. And I won first prize and I got cash for that. So I decided that prose might be my future rather than poetry, um, because it seemed like I was quite good at it. So why then, with all this going on, I mean, you must have felt that, uh, you know, other people were saying you were good. You, you went on to do a PhD or to try and do a PhD on Muriel Spark, didn't you? What, why did you make that decision, given that you were sort of um, hell bent on writing fiction? Well, I mean, I graduated and fell into a series of dead end jobs. I mean, I couldn't get any job in any creative industry. I, I was working in a tax office. I was working as a secretary in a polytechnic um, and eventually I, I said I, I applied to go back and do a PhD um, and, and was turned down was re rejected originally and then somehow the authorities changed their minds and I was allowed to do it and I thought oh good three years of funding this is my time to try and become a writer so I did enough work on the PhD that they couldn't kick me out but what I did do during the three years of funding was write three novels um, and the first novel was never published. Um, I spoke earlier about the short story competition. Run, coming up sec coming second in the short story competition, the winner was called Ian Crichton Smith and was an established um, novelist and short story writer. And so I'd kept in touch with him and I said, look, Ian, I've written a novel. Can you introduce me to your publisher? And so he wrote a letter of introduction to Livia Galanx at Galanx Publishing. So she actually, and she's the boss of the publisher. I didn't realise what a big deal this was. So she read my, my first novel and turned it down. Um, she said the first two thirds was okay, but the last third needed some work. And I thought, what does she know? Um, <laughs> this, is, this is the perfect novel. I'm not going to change a word of it. So it went into the <laughs> what, bottom drawer. What was that novel about, Ian? Uh, the novel was called Summer Rites, R-I-T-E-S. And it was a dark comedy set in a Scottish Highland hotel. And the cast featured a schizophrenic, one-legged librarian and a young boy with special powers. I mean, it sounds good. What, my wife says it. My wife still. My wife maintains it's my best book. <laughs> wow. So, I mean, have you still got the manuscript? I know you you gave an awful lot of your manuscripts to the um, Edinburgh archives, yeah, didn't you? I mean, but, th this was at a time when I couldn't afford even to photocopy stuff, so there was literally only the typescript, which I would send off to publishers, and they would send it back. Um, I didn't realise what a risky procedure that was. I lost it for years, and it turned up in a trunk, and it is now in the bowels of the National Library of Scotland. The, um, the basically the typescript is in the bowels of the National Library of Scotland in the Ian Rankin archive, and I I, I doubt it's going to be ready for publication anytime soon. Um, <laughs> certainly not until I shuffle off this mortal coil. <laughs> you you wrote a novel, The Flood. That was actually your your debut published novel wasn't it and that wasn't crime fiction either that was um it's a sort of small community story which I think you you wrote when you were 24 
more or less? Yeah, I mean, um, again, so this would have been the second book I wrote during my three years of funding for the PhD. So Summer Rights went in the bottom drawer. Um, and I wrote this book, The Flood, which started life as a short story, but raged out of control until it was too long to send to anybody. I didn't think I could put it into BBC radio or, or any magazine or newspaper. So I thought, well, that's chapter one. I'll just keep going. And it was eventually picked up by a very small press in Edinburgh that was actually run by students. So, I mean, it does all seem like it's nepotism gone mad because... Uh, I vaguely knew the people who would be editing it, designing it, and um, proofing it, and everything else. They were all. I feel students. like I feel like nepotism among students is a different type of nepotism. There should be yeah, a possibly different a different word type entirely. Of it's true. It's um, true. But you know, I mean, it was properly peer peer reviewed. Three people read it before it was given a thumbs up to be become part of the Polygon stable. Um, but they published. I think they published two hundred hardcover and six hundred paperback simultaneously, and that was it. And I remember going into secondhand, not secondhand, remainder bookshops, and there it was. Um, like a year later, you could buy a copy for a pound. So it didn't, it never did sell out the run, even at a tiny run like that, which it's now ridiculously collectible. Um, not because of the quality, but just because of how many copies there are. Thinking but, about that quality, is it, it was it hard to write? You'd obviously been writing a lot by this point. What was it like to write The Flood? Did it feel different from your previous novels that had, you know, gone in a drawer? No, no. I, I mean, I wrote by instinct. I didn't plan. I didn't, I never did much planning and I never really knew what was going to happen when I started the story. That was true of short stories and it was true of my novels. It was just what the way I'd always worked. I mean, writing for me was something that I did as a kid in my bedroom and it was an escape from a fairly mundane daily existence so it was you could use your imagination and you could you could be anywhere in the world or anywhere in the universe at any point in history past present or future and you could have all these extraordinary adventures and uh, and so it was a it was a release um and and it was a it was a hobby i mean it was a it was a hobby it was how i spent my free time when i was a teenager and eventually at university it was how i spent my free time if i wasn't out carousing or having to write an essay for my subject I'd be sitting at the desk in my bed sit, typing away on a portable typewriter, which I bought from my sister's mail order catalogue. In fact, I think I still owe her some money for that. One of these deals <laughs> where you're supposed to pay it back 50 pence a week. And I think after so many weeks, I just stopped paying. <laughs> and so you didn't have an agent at this point? I didn't have an agent for the flood, but because the flood was published... An agent came looking for me, a Glasgow-based agent, and she said, have you got anything, are you working on anything else? And I said, well, I've got this book about a cop in Edinburgh called Nuts and Crosses, um, a cop called Rebus. And so she took that. She, she made me change it. There was a big, long flashback section in the middle, and she said, that just doesn't work. You need to cut that to the quick. Because by then I was taking, I thought I'd better take some advice if I do want to get published properly. But I've still got the rejection letters for it. I mean, she sent it to, I think, seven or eight publishing houses in London. And all but one said no. And it was the very last one she wrote to, um, Bodley Head in London, who said, well, OK, we'll, 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 have a, we'll, have a, we'll take a chance on this. So and, and the letter she sent me I had a list of publishers she'd sent it to who'd sent it back. But she'd tipex some of them out. And I, I can, you can, if you hold up to the light, you can actually see through the the Tipex, and I could see that one of them was Canongate, based in Edinburgh. So I think she thought it was a bit embarrassing that an Edinburgh publisher had turned me down. 
So she tipexed <laughs> that out to save my um to, to save me being further humiliated. <laughs> well, I mean, we can come to you know Tata Noir and what you've done for Scottish writing and all that sort of stuff later. But interestingly, I mean, I interviewed um Douglas Stewart on this podcast a couple of seasons ago, and he was saying that quite a few Scottish publishers turned down turned down his book and we were talking about whether or not maybe Scottish publishers sometimes feel funny about Scottish writing in the first instance, that they don't want to sort of be too focused on Scottish things or something. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think Scottish publishing at the moment is in a pretty good place. I think um, the, the, they're definitely punching above their weight. People like Polygon and um, Berlin and Canongate. Um, I mean, Canongate published Barack Obama's autobiography, uh, when nobody else wanted it, um, you know, and and they've they've published Matt Haig and had a huge success with him as well, so they've got very good um, they've got very good taste, shall we say, and they've also been very lucky in some of their purchases. But they um, did not think, have good think, taste. They did yeah, not but, have good taste um, back when you were offering them nuts and crosses, unfortunately. They just, I mean, I think they just. They, I mean, there was no such thing really as Scottish crime fiction. Um, I mean, crime fiction was very much looked down on um by by many publishers and nobody was doing it in Scotland so they probably thought well this is well out of our safety zone and we've no idea if there's an appetite or an audience for quite dark urban Scottish I mean this was pre-trainspotting um urban Scottish gritty crime fiction and what gave you, do you remember what gave you the idea and how you felt about it I know you've said you didn't realize in the first instance that you were actually writing crime fiction that wasn't your intention but what do you remember getting the idea for knots and crosses and and how you sort of set about it yeah i mean i'm 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 almost ocd meticulous i've kept everything so i've got the scraps of paper where the first idea came to me dated um and i'd actually been into the offices of polygon publishing to sign a contract on the flood that same afternoon, I'd gone back to my bed sit, which I, it was a kind of flat that I shared with two other students. And I had the living room was my bedroom and I had a gas fire and everything. And I think it was it was winter. I think it was January, February. Um, and I, you know, sitting by the gas fire trying to keep warm. And I just got the idea for this guy, this character who's being sent mysterious messages, knotted pieces of string and crosses made from matchsticks, knots and crosses. And um and I wrote down, I said, somebody's being sent this. It's, it, who's, being, who's being sent it? He may be a cop. And the person sending him is somebody from his past, but he can he's blanked out, he's blocked the memory of why this per, who this person is and why they're doing it. Um, and, and that was it. I mean, it was just main character, maybe a cop, and, and the villain, maybe someone from his past who's out to get him in some way. Uh, it's and really I, I didn't read. I didn't really read crime fiction at the time. I mean, I'd, I'd watched crime shows on television when I was younger, but I didn't. I was studying. I mean, as an undergraduate, I specialised in American literature, and then as a postgraduate, I was specialising in Muriel Spark, um, the Prime of Miss Jean Brodie, etc. Uh, it wasn't really until um, the first Rebus novel was published that I started to read a lot of crime fiction. Now there was a. There is a caveat there, because I had read William McIlvaney. Now, the reason I had read William McIlvaney is that he was a literary novelist. He'd won the Whitbread Prize and stuff like that. But he'd also written three crime novels with a Glasgow detective called Laidlaw. And I'd read those, and I know, I know I'd read them, because in 1985, at the Edinburgh Book Festival, I went running up to him 
and said, oh, Mr. McIlvaney, I'm writing a book that's a bit like your Laidlaw books, but set in Edinburgh. Will you sign this book for me? And I gave him one of his books and he signed it. Good luck with the Edinburgh Laidlaw. Uh, thinking he would wow. never see me again. I mean, that was two years before Knots and Crosses yeah. was published. Um, and he just probably thought, I'll never see this guy again. He probably saw any number of wannabe writers. The thing is, I was pretty, I think, you know, although I was naive in many ways, I was also, I was also, a good Scots word, thrown, stubborn. You know, it didn't matter how many rejections you gave me. I mean, I was sending poetry, lyrics, short stories, everything, radio plays, off into the void in the hope that somebody somewhere might notice the talent that I thought I had. And the vast majority were getting sent back on a regular basis. But I, I wasn't going to give up. The only thing I wanted to be was a published writer. And so I was never, I just wasn't going to give up. Didn't matter how many times you told me no, I would just try again. Well, Thornton is probably also an appropriate word for, for Rebus, isn't it? I mean, I, I find it interesting. Mm. I think you've said in the past that, um, that, that the plot, sort of came first for knots and crosses but I mean I think everyone who's read Rebus would say that they're you know it's character-led crime fiction as, as all the best crime fiction is and um and also and he's a sort of yes this this stubborn kind of hard-boiled almost like Raymond Chandler-esque kind of guy with this sort of whiff of literary pretension thrown in and his, he's got his Walt Whitman at least at first and his mm. jazz and then I think what is really interesting, because, <clears throat> you know, he started in his 40s. He's now, I think, in his late 60s, something like that, mm -hmm. maybe a wee bit older even now. He's he's really evolved. Um, and uh, oh, there was this wonderful quote, actually, from John Lanchester that I just wanted to mention. He described his stubbornness as a deeply Scottish self-image, which I thought was interesting. But he's really evolved and you know, now he's got these sort of lung problems. And he's a bit slower, mm. as are his enemies, in fact. Given that you didn't really intend, you didn't know much about this character to begin with, um, you didn't even, even really intend it to be character-led as a book necessarily, what's that evolution been like for you to kind of watch him, um, watch him grow and change and, and, and also remain the same in many ways with this, with this stubbornness that persists? Well, the, the first draft of the first Rebus novel, I killed him at the end. He was shot and killed at the end. And for some yeah. reason, I changed that in the second draft and he survived. But I thought, well, I'm done with him now. I've written that book and that's that. So, um, so Knots and Crosses had not been very successful. It hadn't really set the world to rights uh, um, or set the world on fire. And so I decided I would become John Le Carre instead. And I wrote a spy novel set in London called Watchmen, which also didn't sell very well. Then I decided I would write a big fat techno thriller that would make me one of those airport millionaires, people buying books at airports and train stations. That was <laughs> West Wind. And again, it didn't sell very well. But my editor had stuck with me throughout. The editor who had taken Rebus for Bodley Head back in the early days had stuck with me. And he said, whatever happened to that guy Rebus? I liked him a lot as a character. Um, and by this time, I'd started reading crime fiction and I liked the series. I liked uh, the fact that... Um, you got to spend a lot of time with a character and they could develop and you could do a lot with a sense of place. I decided by now that what I really wanted to do was write about Edinburgh and use Edinburgh as a microcosm um, for, for Scotland and the UK. So I wanted to look at Edinburgh from top to bottom. And of course, a detective is a very good way of looking at society from top to bottom, from the haves to the have-nots. So I did a second Rebus novel, which still didn't sell very well. Um, it was a long time before I was selling very well. Uh, but 
by then, two books in, I thought, okay, I'm kind of stuck with this guy now. I like him a lot. And to find out what happens to him in his life, I'm going to have to keep writing about him. And I also made the decision early on that he would live more or less in real time. So he would evolve, he would change, which eventually meant he had to retire. And he retired several books ago. Um, and that's been refreshing, actually, for me, because it keeps me on my toes, because now I've got the task of inveigling him into a murder inquiry or a police investigation while he's no longer a detective. I really enjoy that in the latest book. There are all these sort of, you know, this sort of nods to the reader almost, or you're kind of saying, well, yes, we know it's sort of a bit strange that he's hanging about with these people still, but that's, you know, that's what he does because that, in fact, that fits very well with his character that he wouldn't relinquish um, these interests and these um, connections and so on. No, well, I mean, being a detective is the only thing that's given his life any meaning, really. Um, and so he's very loath to give that up. And also he's on this sort of quest to, 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 to get to the centre of what makes Edinburgh and Scotland tick. And he's not quite completed that quest yet. The quest that I'm on is to get to the bottom of what makes Rebus tick. And that quest isn't quite over yet either. But the clock is definitely ticking. Because as you've suggested, he's now in his late 60s, early 70s. There's only so, I mean, there's not much more that he can realistically do, I don't think. Um, he can't chase suspects anymore. He can barely climb a flight of stairs. <laughs> has, it been, has it been interesting, has it been surprising for you to see how he's developed over all this time? Well, yeah, I mean, there was never a plan. There was never a five-year or ten-year plan or a five-book or ten-book plan. It's just when, I, when it's time to start another book, um, I think, okay, what do I want to write about today? And uh, I might get a theme I want to explore. I find a plot that allows me to explore that theme. And then I think, okay, who... Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Is the best character to lead the reader through this story. And so far, the answer has almost always been John Rebus. It isn't always the answer, but it mostly is the answer. Um, mm. And, I, you know, when I start writing about him, I just enjoy it. It's like he's he's been locked in a little compartment in my head and suddenly I've let him out, I've released him, and he just loves being out playing with me. Can we just go back a wee bit to, to those rejections um, when they were coming in through your agent for knots and crosses, mm. I wonder how that how that felt for you at the time, and whether you were sort of losing hope. That losing? No, I, did I ever lose hope? I don't think I ever lost hope. I think I um, because it was a hobby. Because it was a hobby, albeit occasionally a paid hobby, 
I, w- I would have been doing it anyway. I was doing it for the sheer fun of doing it. Um, Not lose hope for writing altogether, but specifically for Rebus. Did, were you sort of, did you get to a point where you thought, well, Rebus is going to go in the drawer like some of the other ones? Oh, I mean, all the time. I mean, up until Rebus number seven or eight published, um, I was still thinking, though, that he's, you know, people just aren't wanting these books. The publishers didn't really want the books <laughs> and readers weren't buying them in great numbers. I just thought, well, you know, if I'm going to be a full time writer, maybe I've got to put Rebus to one side and try something else. But I just like hanging out with the guy. I just really enjoyed writing about him and all his colleagues and the gangsters and the villains he came up against and the and the, the type the, the the version of Edinburgh that I had created that he would mm. walk around and drive around I just really enjoyed that it was my it was a great pleasure to sit and write those books and it was cathartic as well because anything anything ne- anything negative that was happening in my personal life I could just dump it on him and, yeah. and, and he and I would deal with it through him let's talk about that time period a little bit if that's all right with you I mean I know at first you were actually living in London weren't you um, and you were working as an editor for a hi-fi magazine I think that's a nostalgic sentence <laughs> and, um, and I've read about you, you I think you had panic attacks around that time is that right what, what, what do you think that was about? Yeah the three years of funding for the PhD ran out and it ran out it coincided with me getting married my wife was working as a civil servant in London so she found us a flat in Tottenham that was all we could afford um, and we, so we moved into a, a maisonette in Tottenham and I was still writing full time and she was supporting me, but it just wasn't working. So eventually I got a job and I worked um, at Middlesex Polytechnic for a little while. And then I got a job as the assistant on a music and hi-fi magazine um, and was writing in the, in, the kind of, in the little gaps in my daily life. So first thing in the morning, last thing at night, weekends, I'd be writing. Um, and then eventually, after four years in London, we decided this is hopeless. Um, let's get out of here. And we loved France. So we found a, a, a ramshackle farmhouse in France that we could rent. And that was the start of me trying to make it as a full-time writer. But now, not only was I trying to make it as a full-time writer, but I was having to support my wife because she no longer had a job in the civil service. Mm. So, uh, and this had been preceded by panic attacks. Um, I'd been having panic attacks for a little while where I'd be waiting on the tube or I'd be on the tube and suddenly my heart rate would start going and I would get kind of sweaty and trembling and I think I was having a heart attack. Um, and that that kept going. We thought maybe moving to France would put an end to that. But of course, all the pressure of suddenly being the breadwinner in a country where mm. you can't speak the language uh, and 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 you're really struggling to get by financially. I mean, I was um, I would we had a two CV a Citroen two CV, and I would drive the Citroen two CV through the midnight empty rural roads of France, screaming, just screaming to get rid of all this adrenaline that was coursing wow. through the system. So, do you think that that those panic attacks were about excess adrenaline and about anxiety about um over what you were doing with your life or not being able to um, earn enough money is that what they were about do you think yeah I think it was it was about you know self-inflicted psychological pressure really mm. mostly I mean to start with I think it was about trying to live in London you know um sure. the kind of daily stress of just trying to get around London and having a job and everything else and then trying to shoehorn your the one thing you love which is your writing into a tiny tiny compartment in your life um but it didn't I mean it abated when we moved to France it was a very different lifestyle in France they weren't the same stresses 
but a different sort, a different series of stresses arrive to take over and fill that gap. I mean, I learned coping mechanisms. I mean, whether it was really basic things like like, like breathing into a paper bag, um, which is a thing that just gets your gets your heart rate back down again, gets your breathing under control, mm. or whether it was you know giving up caffeine or taking minimal amounts of caffeine. And just learning to let go, just learning to sort of not worry all the time about everything. Yeah. How horrible for you. I feel like you're really painting a picture of the kind of struggling artist, actually. And, I, and I, I'm glad that those are baited. And I wonder if, you know, a high level anxiety is common for all wannabe writers, especially those struggling also to, to kind of make rent. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I think there's always the struggle that what you're writing is no good. Nobody's going to like it. I mean, the biggest step you can take as a writer is showing your work to a stranger. I mean, it's one thing showing it to a friend or a partner. Quite another thing, sending it off to a publisher or an editor or somebody or even reading it out at a writer's group meeting or something. I mean, that's absolutely terrifying. And you never really as a writer, I don't think if you're any good, you never lose that that slight creeping sense of dread that you're really not that good or that this book isn't as good as your previous books or that this time you're going to get found out. I mean, that, that huge sense of imposter syndrome that, that, you know, people are giving you great reviews and your books are selling lots of copies, but you might not actually believe that you're writing the best books you possibly can. And, uh, you know, there's an awful lot of, as a writer, you live an awful lot of your life in your head. Um, and and you you live a solitary existence a lot of the time. In fact, we're weird. We are kind of weird, screwed up Jekyll and Hyde characters because you spend half your life writing in complete isolation and then half your life out there trying to convince people that you're it's worth buying your stuff. So you've suddenly got to turn up at a bookshop and talk to complete strangers and entertain them for an hour and then hope they'll buy your book afterwards. But I mean... Writers are not writers because they're gregarious, outgoing, socially adapted people. Writers are the kind of weird kids at school. <laughs> the, the, the ones who would much rather go home and sit and write love poetry in their bedrooms while listening to Pink Floyd. <laughs> um, yes, I think that's right. Uh, so, so, I mean, you've written, I think this is your 26th Rebus that's about to come out now. Do you feel like you've got rid of that imposter syndrome now, finally, or do you still have it? Oh, I've still got it. I mean, I've still got slight imposter syndrome. More than that is this fear that, you know, people are going to look at this book and say, well, he's, he's way past his best now. Now, I think it was Ruth Rendell who a long time ago, I can't remember if she was talking to me or if someone else reported it to me. She said, you know, as a writer, you get better and your sales improve and then you get to this plateau where you're probably not going to get better and your sales definitely aren't going to improve. And what you hope is that you've got a nice long plateau before the terrain starts to dip again um, and you're writing <laughs> rubbish books that are selling no copies at all. That's a fairly depressing way of looking at it. <laughs> I mean, there's something in it, isn't there? I mean, I've written well over 30 books now in various categories. You, can't keep, you cannot keep getting better. You cannot keep getting better. I mean, I can, I can think of precious few writers who wrote 20, 30, 40, 50 books and kept getting better. I mean, they might, they might maintain a level of quality for quite a long time, but there is a, there's usually a drop-off eventually, or else they just think, I'm going to stop writing before that. They're, they're, they're self-aware enough to stop writing before the drop-off begins. Mm, yeah. No, I think that makes sense. Just going back a wee bit, to, so you're in France, 
and your wife no longer has a job and you are the, the breadwinner. And I gather it was quite rustic there but about you sleeping on stone floors and sleeping bags and so on is that right um, yeah I mean the the first winter we were there it was absolutely freezing and we didn't have a sofa we couldn't afford a sofa but the, the, you can detach the back seat from the 2CV car so we would detach the back seat and bring it into the kitchen and that was our sofa uh, of an evening yeah it was pretty uh, <laughs> I mean I mean you would say it was miserable except it was a big adventure this is before kids came along Mm -hmm. um, so we were, you know, we were still in our, well, we were actually 30. We weren't quite in our 20s, but it was, it all seemed like an adventure. And if it didn't work out, we knew we could, we could head back to the UK with our tails between our legs and start again. Okay. So it wasn't, it wasn't, it was hard, but not as mentally hard as it might sound to someone older with, with more responsibilities, both financial and family wise. Yeah, I mean, after a couple of years, kids came along and, and that, you know, that, that sort of gave me a new focus that suddenly I wasn't just making enough money for Miranda and I to live on, but suddenly we had an, an extra mouth or two to feed as well. Um, but by then the books had begun to take off to the extent that I was, you know, I was able to put food on the table. Um, but again, even at that, you think, OK, now I'm fairly financially stable as long as my next book sells and you're going well will my next book sell because there comes a point mm. in someone's publishing life that if they've not hit the big time their publisher starts to lose a bit of interest you're what's called mid-list mid-list mm -hmm. means that you're selling maybe several thousand copies you're keeping you're just in profit with a publisher but they can't get excited about you because the public have not taken you completely to their hearts and you're never hitting the bestseller lists and it was a long time. I think it was Rebus novel number 10 or 11. So maybe my 16th or 17th published book before I got to number one in the UK. Um, I don't think these days a writer would be given that luxury. I think these days, if you don't hit it big fairly early on in your career, you're, you're going to be moved on. And that was always my fear was as a middleist author, the publisher would lose interest to the extent that they would drop me. Do you think there's a difference between mid-list when you have a series, as you did, where your fan base might have been smallish, but there were a base that would reliably buy your books? Do you think there's a difference between that kind of mid-list and the kind of mid-list where you're writing standalone novels and there's no guarantee that anyone will buy the next one? Well, I think there are pros and cons to both approaches. I mean, yeah, I mean, hopefully if I hook you with one of my Rebus novels, you're going to want to read all of them. Great. But that can also be very off-putting. You've Say you've picked up a Rebus novel, you, you don't know these books. You read it and you think, oh, that was really good. Then you look and you see there are over 20 more. You think, oh, no, that's ridiculous. I'm not going to read all 20. So, <laughs> so you, sort of, you, don't, you don't. You don't start the journey. But on the other hand, people do get completely involved with the character or the cast of characters, and you can't wait for the next adventure. These days, I think things have changed so much. When I started off in publishing, traditional publishing was the only publishing option there was. But now you can go online, you can do ebooks, you can self-publish. Um, and if you build up a, a good enough gathering, you can be making a living without troubling either the bestseller lists or um, physical publishing houses. Um, I, know, I know several writers who've done that and they've done it really well. So that's an option that's now available to, to younger writers that was never available when I was starting out. Mm. What advice would you give to people who are, are maybe, you know, mid-list writers um, who've maybe sold a couple of books but aren't really sure what's in store for the next? It's hard to know. I mean, I, I, 
the, you know, new avenues do exist. It didn't exist before. So you can uh, end up, you know, putting your stuff on Amazon Marketplace or whatever, or whatever, you know, whatever publishing, e-publishing um, channels are out there. And and you can move your stuff there. I mean, I know I know one or two at least very well established writers whose early works are no longer in print, and all they've done is they got the rights back and they put them on as eBooks or self-published them, and those old books are doing well. Um, so a publisher might have lost interest in your early books, but you can you can keep them going. So a book that that you've written and published, and maybe you know it's it's now selling very few if any copies a year. In a few years' time, that's that might become viable again, and you might be able to sort of bring it back into the 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 reading the reader's domain, um, and find a whole new audience. So, you know, never never throw anything away and never lose hope because um, th- you know there are readers out there who are who are hungry to find new writers and hungry to find new books. Mm. So, when did Rebus really hit? Sorry, so you said Rebus went to number one at the tenth or eleventh book. What was that? What was that like for you when you suddenly realised, okay, I am now really quite a successful writer, having having laboured for quite a long time up to that point. I, I, I remember. I mean, it, there was a kind of very slow but steady build, and of course, people who were reading the the, the, the you know who who come on board for one book, if they liked it, would go back and read the other ones. I mean, it was a point at which I remember getting sent a list of the Scottish bestseller list and I had eight of the top 10 and that was because people who'd read one were going back and suddenly buying all the others so my backlist suddenly became very <laughs> valuable I mean the backlist which you know had been selling a trickle um suddenly was repackaged and was, they were selling lots and I, I I remember it really well I don't remember that I think number one hit number one I think I was on a railway station platform somewhere in in middle England and uh uh, and and heading back to Edinburgh at the end of a book tour or something, and just got you know oh you've hit number one, congratulations, and that was that. And then I was on the train, and I think there was no catering, uh, so I just had to sit in this train for hours uh, before I could get home and celebrate. By which time I was <laughs> knackered and didn't feel like celebrating. What I do remember very vividly when I first felt like being a success was I was on a book tour in America, and I was in a kind of fairly scuzzy motel somewhere in the middle of nowhere. And I phoned my wife and she said, oh, your six monthly royalty statement has come in. So that's the kind of the previous six month sales for all your backlisted books. She said it's six figures. I went, (laughs) I said that I said that's a mistake. That's a mistake. So I phoned up my agent and I said, look, I think the publishers made a mistake. And he went, no, no. And this was all the people coming to the Rebus novels who had who had bought into one and then had gone back and wanted to read all the previous ones. (laughs) <laughs> and that was just, a, I mean, that was such a huge thrill that suddenly, after all these books that were only selling a few hundred copies a year, suddenly were selling in the tens of thousands. How wonderful. And I have to say, as a reader, discovering a, an author with a backlist is, is better in a way than, than you know, happening upon a, a new writer because, because you have, you know, it's like, binging Netflix you suddenly have all of the all of your favorite things at your disposable at your disposal for whenever you want them it's wonderful I know I, um, I love it when people you know some readers on Twitter will say to me oh I'm, I've just started a reread of the Rebus series and then they'll come back to me and say I'm on book five I'm on book 10 I'm on book 12 I'm on book 15 um I just love it <laughs> that they're in for the long haul and it's it's flattering in a way I mean these early books now read like historical documents I mean, the first Rebus novels, yeah. was two or three, were written in a time before computers. The police stations didn't have ready access to computers. 
nobody had a mobile phone. CCTV wasn't such a big deal. Um, crime scene analysis was fairly basic. The fax machine was a mini god that sat in the corner of the office. Um, <laughs> and the world has just changed so dramatically. So those books now read to me like ancient history. Yeah. Um, Ian, where do you write these days and how do you write? I know you said before you were extremely meticulous about some things. Are you meticulous about the way you write creative fiction and, and, and where do you do it? Um, well, I write on a, an old, an old Hewlett-Packard laptop. I say old because the screens had to be replaced and the memory, um, the, the hard disk's been replaced. Uh, but I still, I st and it's got grooves in the keys. The keys have been hit so often that there are grooves in them, especially the <laughs> space bar. Um, and I, I just like it. I mean, I'm very, I'm very sort of superstitious. If I've got a computer that works, then I'm very loath to throw it away and get the brand new bells and whistles model. I've got the luxury now, we downsized a few years ago, and until we downsized, I'd always written in the house. The house that I live in was also my office. But when we downsized, there wasn't quite enough space for me, so I bought a one-bedroom flat next door, and that became my office. Literally two days ago, moved from that into a bigger office, because I'm running out of space. Too many books, too many LPs, just too much stuff. So I've moved into a slightly bigger office, one building over. And yeah, so that's like my my man shed, my man cave. So there's a room that's there's a room that's set aside for listening to records. There's a, a room that's set aside for writing books, and there's another room that's set aside as a library. Floor to ceiling, Billy bookcases from IKEA. And, this sounds uh, absolutely amazing. I've always coveted a shed in the garden, yeah. of which there are many on Instagram. But now I'm coveting this. This sounds much better. A three room, uh, a three room writing shed. <laughs> well, I just, I just hope I don't grow out of it. I mean, you know, having downsized, it's kind of funny to start upsizing again. Um, but yeah, so it's a beautiful luxury to have. But you know, we've had, I mean, you know, drafty rooms with broken windows. Uh, when we moved back to Edinburgh from France, I had a little cubby hole that held in it the washing machine and the pulley, the clothes pulley you dried the clothes on. There was a little <laughs> unlit um, cubby hole with a washing machine, a clothes pulley and me um, sitting at my trestle table. I've had the same trestle table since we got married. So it was bought in London in 1986. It went to France with us, came back to Edinburgh with us, and it's still where I write all the books. And do you think it makes a difference, the environment you're in when you write? I used to think that. I used to think I had I couldn't write on the road. I couldn't write on holiday. I could only write in my office in Edinburgh. But then we bought a place up north in, in um, Cromarty, a fishing town, Cromarty, uh, up northeast of Inverness. And that became a very good place to write because there were no distractions. Nobody had, knew my phone number there, so nobody could phone me. Um, we didn't have a television and there was no mobile phone signal in the house. So I got an awful lot of writing done. And until COVID came along, that's where the past three or four books had been written in splendid isolation. Um, How wonderful. What, what a luxury to have. But then when COVID came along, I thought, oh, well, I can't do that anymore. So the last two books, three books, actually, have been written in Edinburgh. So, I mean, I can't write in cafes. I know people can write. I mean, J.K. Rowling, famously, I used to see her writing in cafes back in the mm -hmm. early days. But I can't, I can't write on trains or planes or uh, anything. I can't write in hotel rooms. I've got to have my, you know, reference books to hand, my music playing and ready access to a kettle. <laughs> tea or coffee? Coffee first thing in the morning, after that, tea. Okay. And do you, is writing a painful process for you? Do you do many, many drafts? I usually do three or four drafts. I wouldn't say it's a painful process. The first draft is very, very 
dodgy. It's very bitty. Lots of mistakes, lots of gaps, things that have got to be filled in later on. And nobody ever sees that. That's just really the spine of the story. Does the story work as a story? Everything else gets fixed after that. I do the bulk of the research after the first draft is complete because by then I know what I need to know, not what I might need to know. And then second draft, maybe a third draft, and I show it to Miranda, and she goes through it. I print it off. We still do it the old-fashioned way. Print it off. She reads it on A4 sheets, and she writes in the margins. And if she's scribbling, scribbling, scribbling away, my heart sinks. Um, (laughs) Because she's obviously finding lots of things that aren't properly working in this book. Although even a single thing, like a single question mark or a single exclamation mark can be enough to have my heart sink um (laughs) and then I correct that so we discuss it I change it then it goes to the editor at my publishing house so when the editor comes back and says oh Ian I've just got a few suggestions I go well hang on a minute this book's already been edited it's been edited by my wife (laughs) I think Um, that's so lovely that she's your first port of call because I think sometimes people find it actually really stressful showing their spouses or family members or friends their work just because um, I don't know, sometimes people who are very close to you, the criticism yeah. feels feels too much somehow. Um, yeah, and, and, but that's and, not the case know, I mean, I, I think there have been times where she's felt, you know, I mean, she knows that if she says something, no, this isn't working. She knows just how devastating that is. But it's better for her. It's, it's better to hear it from a friend than a stranger, I think. You mentioned COVID just then. And I, and I just wanted to mention um, in your latest book, A Heart Full of Headstones, it's really interesting how you've incorporated COVID into this book, because I think a lot of authors during lockdown felt that they needed to, and, and after lockdown, felt that they needed to um, kind of ignore the fact that COVID had happened to the world. I think people maybe just felt that it was just something that still felt very raw. Mm. And so a lot of people just ignored that it happened. You, on the other hand, have have not just put it in the book, but in fact, in some parts of it, it almost feels like the premise of the book. You know, there, there are specific things that have happened as a result of lockdown, like a surge in domestic violence and bad guys and good guys all kind of getting very bored, holed up in their homes mm. with nothing to do. I should say that the book takes place after lockdown, but they talk about mm. it having happened already. And I found that fascinating. I thought you did it so well and it didn't feel raw and painful to read about. It felt realistic and truthful. And I just wondered, yeah, what, what made you decide to do that and how you went about it? Well, it is a double-edged sword, you know, because if you write about something that seems incredibly current, that gets very old very quickly. I mean, there's one of the Rebus novels was set around the G8. I mean, who remembers the G8 summit in Glasgow or in Scotland, sorry? at um, Glen Eagles, um, hardly anybody. I mean, but, you know, it was a big deal at the time and I wrote about it and it became a historical novel very quickly. So, I mean, COVID, hopefully in a, f- a few years' time, people will, will just barely remember COVID um, and maybe don't want to remember COVID. I just felt that, you know, I mean, yeah, it was a big decision. You know, do I mention it? Is it a time, is a book set during the time of COVID? Do I just ignore the fact that it's happened, this huge cataclysm that's happened to society? And then I walked into a bar in Edinburgh, and a guy I know was sitting there, and he had this he had this lanyard on with a little laminated card uh, hanging from it. And I said, "What's that?" He said, "Oh, it's to tell people I've got COPD, so I don't need to wear a mask." And I said, "Oh, Rebus has COPD," and that just got me thinking. I thought, "Well, I, I could have some fun with this. If Rebus is is wearing a lanyard, he could try and sneak his way into police inquiries, get past the the police tape at a murder scene." just by slipping a lanyard on and hoping somebody thinks he's official. 
So I could mm-hmm. I could actually I could just see a kind of I could see a positive um to having it be set at a time when this was still hanging around. Um and yeah, I just it was because Rebus has these health issues, I thought, well, here's another this adds another layer um of drama to his life. Uh, I mean, during lockdown, I was asked by the National Theatre of Scotland to write a little playlet, a little 10 minute monologue about COVID, about the lockdown situation. And I wrote a monologue for Rebus because people had been saying to me, oh, how's Rebus getting on? Because he's got COPD. He must be locked away. He must be in isolation. <laughs> so so yes. I did that to, to, to explain to myself and to other people what, how Rebus was coping with, um, with lockdown. And they got Brian Cox, yes. the, the great Scottish actor, they got him to do it as a monologue. And it was just it was wonderful. Um, I've got to say that's 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 one of the few plays I've written that hasn't been rejected, so that's quite nice. <laughs> so you still have an area of your life where you, where you're where you still experience rejection. Oh God, yeah. Been... I mean, I mean, you know, comic book ideas that get knocked back, plays. I mean, I've I've written a play in the last two years, a Rebus play that got knocked back, stage play. It's, 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 the world of film is maybe a wee bit different. You tell me, but are people kind of? Um... Are they sort of ap- apologetic or embarrassed when they're turning down Sir Ian Rankin for something, or do they are they still quite abrupt with rejection? They're 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 abrupt. Um, they're they're not at all apologetic. The buggers, uh, you know. And it's <laughs> it's like it's like treatments for TV shows and film scripts and all kinds of projects have, have been turned down. But um, it's it's good for the soul. It keeps you grounded. I think. But I do like stretching myself. I mean, you know, you, I, I could do nothing but write Rebus novels from now until Doomsday and he would sell and I'd have a, a nice, comfortable life. But now and again, I like to stretch myself. I like to try something different, a, a graphic novel, a comic book, or a, a, the, the libretto for an opera, or a, a, a film treatment, um, just something, or a song lyrics. Um, anything that's going to make me think about creative writing in a different way or telling a story in a different way. And I think it's it's... It, I think it's it's necessary. Otherwise, you can get a little bit, you can get lazy and you can get very set in your ways. Um, so it's nice to go off piste every now and again, even though there might be a cliff ahead of you. Yes. And actually, speaking of which, um, you mentioned William McCovney earlier, who you and he are credited with sort of launching or establishing this whole sort of tartan noir subgenre. And then, of course, you finished his book for him. That must have felt pretty incredible having met him when you were just starting out and, and have reading his books before you were even published. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting arc to my life and his life. I met him when I was a fan and he was a well-established writer. Then I got published and I wasn't selling very well, but I did an event in Glasgow and he came along just to sit in the audience and watch me talk. I think there were seven people in the room and he was one of them. And then we went to appearing on stage together. Then he had a period of time when his books were out of print and he wasn't being read very much. Then his books came back into print and he had this lovely last act in his life where he became a big hit at the um, literary circuit on the literary circuit. And I interviewed him at an event at Harrogate Crime Festival and 800 people were in the room to give him a standing ovation. And then he died. And he had, he, I think this third act in his life had convinced him that he had let go of his detective character Laidlaw too cheaply and too easily. And so he had some ideas for future Laidlaw books and he'd started to write one of them uh, before his death. And his widow asked me if I would take a look at it and see if something could be salvaged from it. And when I said, yeah, you could get a short novel out of it if you do X, Y, and Z, she said, well, will you, will you give it a go? And I wasn't sure that I could mimic his voice, certainly wasn't sure that I could write about Glasgow in 1972 
but I thought, you know, to, to, to honour him, and because she'd asked, I would give it a go. And she wrote me, a, this was all done during lockdown, and she wrote me a lovely handwritten letter afterwards, and she said, um, oh, Ian, you brought him back to me. You brought Willie back to me for the, the weekend that I sat reading this story. It was as though he was sitting next to me while I read it, and I could not see the join. I couldn't see where it stopped being him and it started being you. And I just thought, well, that's as good a review as I'm ever likely to get. So it was a thrill to actually, and an honour to to finish off um, his final work. Yes, how wonderful. And that Tata Noir label, is that something you're comfortable with? Is it something you are happy to have established or do you not identify it with it as well, much as people? I, I mean, embarrassingly, I, I made it up. I mean, I, I used to pretend that that James Elroy, the American crime writer, had said it about me. But in fact, I told him to say it about me. Um, so <laughs> I Tartan, didn't know Tartan, that. Yeah, Tartan Noir was a phrase that I, I think I basically invented. It's quite fun, isn't it? Because Tartan is not noir. Tartan is multicolored, so it's a you know it's an oxymoron. <laughs> um, but it was useful shorthand at a time when you had Scandi Noir. I thought it was very useful of Tartan Noir. The Scots are doing this as well, by the way. Um, but Scottish crime fiction is a much broader church than that term. Uh, could could possibly encompass. So, for example, the gentle Botswana-based crime novels of Alexander McCall Smith sure. don't really fit into a tartan noir category. We've got everything. We've got we've got historical crime fiction. We've got psychological suspense. We've got police procedurals. Uh, we've got all types of crime novels. So, it's a much broader. It's a there's a much bigger umbrella um, that Scottish writers shelter under than the term tartan noir would suggest. Yes. And you're and obviously you didn't set out to write crime at all, necessarily. But do you feel and I think you've talked in the past about how um, you felt that maybe there was a bit of snobbery about, well, genre writing generally. But I think you were referring specifically to crime fiction. Do you feel that that's abated that for you in any case? Do you feel happy within that genre? Well, I'm very happy within the genre. I do think, A, the genre has changed. Um, when writers, young writers are coming along and wanting to use the crime novel to say something about society, to look at, at, at you know, structural problems in society, problems of poverty and, uh, and xenophobia and migration and, and what unemployment does to people and so on and greed and, and venality. And so they want to write socially complex novels and they find the crime novel a good way of doing that. So mm. it's not just about the puzzle. It's not just about the locked room or the, the, the body in the billiard table anymore. Um, and hasn't been for a long, long time. I think also the, uh, the general appreciation of crime fiction is that it is, it is literature, that it's as valid as any other form of literature. Other genres have not been dealt as, as, as good a hand. I do think that science fiction, fantasy novels, historical novels, romantic fiction, et cetera, et cetera, are still looked down on. Um, the crime novel, not so much. You can now study crime fiction in some universities and at high school, you can write your English essay on crime novels and what have you in a way that wasn't happening when I started in this game nearly 40 years ago now. So that's been mm. very heartening that, that in, you know, a younger generation have come along with great new ideas about how to regenerate and revive the crime novel and, and make it fresh and make it new. And at the same time, the crime novel per se is getting taken much more seriously. Thank you so much for listening to Write Off. Do come find me to chat on Twitter, where I'm at Francesca Steele, and Instagram, where I'm at Francesca Steele Writes. 
I'll put that in the show notes. If you enjoyed Write Off, please do share it with others and please, please, please consider leaving a review on the iTunes app, which really helps other people find the podcast. Thanks and see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.